You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 25th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One year ago, in November 2019, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, formed the Climate-Related Market Risk Subcommittee. The subcommittee was established to produce a report to advise the Market Risk Advisory Committee about climate-related financial and market risks. Understanding such risks is a core part of the mission of the CFTC, an independent agency of the U.S. government created in 1974, which regulates the U.S. derivatives markets, including futures, swaps, and certain kinds of options. The Climate Subcommittee was asked to not only consider what climate-related risks might be, but also to examine whether adequate information about climate risks is available, to identify any impediments to evaluating and managing climate-related financial and market risks, to ask whether the market can do a better job of integrating climate-related scenarios, and to use them to stress-test investments, to incorporate disclosures of climate risk into financial and market risk assessments and reporting, to identify how risks can be managed and disclosed in order to protect the stability of the financial system, and to ensure that information about climate-related financial and market risks are internalized into the market, including potential impacts of climate change on agricultural production, energy, food, insurance, real estate, and other financial stability indicators. The Climate Subcommittee is composed of 34 experts with demonstrated expertise in climate change risk, representing numerous sectors of the economy, including financial markets, banking, insurance, agriculture, energy, data and intelligence service providers, environmental and sustainability public interests, and academic disciplines that are focused on climate change, adaptation, public policy, and finance. It is chaired by Bob Litterman, founding partner and risk committee chairman of Capos Capital, who I am very pleased to welcome to the show as our guest today. Bob has had a decades-long career in risk management and has been a champion of recognizing and integrating climate risk for many years. The Climate Subcommittee's report was released on September 9, 2020, with the unanimous support of its members. Today, we're going to speak with Bob about what the report says, why it's important, and how its findings might be used to integrate awareness of climate risk into financial metrics and enterprise governance. But before we go to the interview, a quick word about the U.S. election, since our production deadline didn't allow room for that in the previous episode. As of the day I'm recording this introduction, there is no doubt that Joe Biden will be the next president and that Trump will become only the third U.S. president since 1933 to be rejected by voters after one term. 
This is, obviously, great news for the project of energy transition, as Biden and his vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, have put action on climate change at the very center of their agenda, making their administration the polar opposite of the Trump administration, which did everything it could to prop up the fossil fuel industry and halt action on climate. And Lord knows the Biden administration has their work cut out for them. Of course, we'll be discussing their efforts over the coming years as their work unfolds. I'm expecting great things and bold action on energy transition. For now, suffice it to say that energy transitionistas have much to celebrate in this outcome, for just a moment anyway, before we all get back to work and redouble our efforts. Then in the extra-long news segment of this episode, we cover six recent stories about investors, funds, and banks coming to grips with climate risks. We'll also note a significant milestone for green bond issuance. We'll update ExxonMobil's internal denial about climate action. And we'll consider a possibly historic move by the Bank of England. This episode is just a bonanza of news about finance in the era of climate action. And as ever, I strongly encourage subscribers who are interested in this subject to log into our website and see the show notes for this episode, which notched what I think is a record-setting 45 research references for this episode alone. Yes, we do our research around here. And now, our conversation with Bob Litterman, recorded October 6th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Bob, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to talk about the new report that your climate subcommittee issued titled Managing Climate Risk in the U.S. Financial System and about how we should begin integrating climate risk assessment into our business and financial processes. So to begin with, I'd like to simply ask, why now? After decades of research indicating that climate change damages the global economy, including at least a decade of financial analysts warning about the risks of stranded assets in the fossil fuel sector due to climate policy, like Mark Campanale of Carbon Tracker, who joined us in episode 133. Why is the CFTC only now looking to formally recognize climate risk in the ordinary governance and financial reporting of business? Is it because environmental, social, and governance, or ESG criteria, as we call them now, which have been around since the 1960s, really, as standards used by socially conscious investors to screen investments, are suddenly in vogue, or has the damage caused by climate change just simply finally become undeniable? I think we first have to go back that this basic problem has been something that we've talked about for decades, as you mentioned, and it's a risk management problem, although it hasn't always been framed that way. It's often viewed either from a science point of view or sometimes from an environmental issue. But what we're really realizing now is that the risks are quite significant, not just to the environment, but to the whole economy and the financial system. And for some time now, we've been kind of putting it off, not addressing it, and we should have addressed it decades ago. So why now? It it is late, but we can't change what didn't happen in the past. We can only change what goes forward today. And when you say, why the CFTC? Well, you know, it's really a global problem, and there is quite a bit going on in the rest of the world in terms of addressing this problem. But in the U.S., we've been behind, and within the financial regulatory system in the U.S., we've been particularly behind. And I think that the CFTC, and I give a lot of credit here to Commissioner Russ Benham, who really was focused on market risk and said, look, one of the issues is risk created by the change of climate. And I don't see anyone else addressing this risk to the financial system. 
And Russ in particular was focused on agriculture before he came to the CFTC. So he's seen some of the impacts from climate risk. And he basically said, look, someone should be looking into this. And the other commissioners on the CFTC agreed with him. It was a bipartisan initiative. And Russ did a terrific job in bringing this subcommittee together to address this question. All right. So let's dive into the report. It's quite comprehensive. And so as a way of kind of reducing this a little bit for the form of a podcast, I thought maybe we could focus on a few areas that committee member Leonardo Martinez-Diaz of the World Resources Institute highlighted in his article about the report. And the first of these areas is carbon pricing. The report calls for a carbon price that's high enough to meet the Paris Agreement targets, but also warns that it should be structured so as not to put an unfair burden on low to moderate income groups. And I'd say there's been broad agreement about that in the energy and climate communities for the better part of 20 years now. So, okay, you'll have to forgive me for being a bit of a skeptic on that point, but if we haven't been able to get a carbon price done in the U.S. after 20 years of agitating for it, why should we think it's an actionable strategy now? (laughs) Okay, well, it's a great question, and we have to go back to what is the fundamental problem? And the fundamental problem, and this was certainly highlighted in the CFTC report, and we all agreed on it, the fundamental problem is we don't have appropriate incentives to reduce emissions, not in the U.S., not globally. And that is the fundamental problem because we all understand the nature of this problem, that we're creating these emissions and they're creating warming and that's creating changes in the climate. And so we have to go to the root cause, which are the greenhouse gas emissions, and we have to go to the behaviors that create those emissions. We have to change those behaviors. Now, if you want to change behaviors, what you have to change are incentives. And I say that as an economist, and sometimes people say to me, Bob, you think people are rational. And no, it has nothing to do with rationality. (laughs) Okay, we should make that clear. Before I became an economist, I studied human biology. And it's the biology part that I would focus on. Whether you're a human or any other kind of animal, you respond to incentives. That's what incentives are. It's definitional. Incentives are things that change behavior. So if you want to change behavior, you have to change incentives. Now, It's one thing when I'm training my dog and the incentive is a biscuit or something. But with humans, the incentives are in a modern capitalistic economy, prices and wages. And so we have to change those. And the way you change those is you price the risk. You create the appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. And now you say we haven't done it in 20 years. Well, that's a problem. And we haven't addressed this problem appropriately in 20 years. And emissions globally continue to go up. And it's not just that the emissions have to stop going up. We have to get to zero net emissions before the temperature actually peaks. And in order to do that at a time frame that's necessary to address the risk management issue, we have to get started immediately. So I would summarize by saying the inevitable policy response, which many people call it that, the inevitable policy response, is to create these appropriate incentives. And so it's something that absolutely should have been done 20 years ago. We can't change history. We have to do it immediately. So the urgency here is absolutely the key thing for 
everyone to understand. The way I like to try and talk about it is in terms of what we need being a slam on the brakes scenario. And if I could just elaborate on that for a bit. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. You know, economists have for decades have been talking about the need to create these incentives. But 30 years ago, the standard economic model had what I call an ease on the brakes approach. It said, yes, of course, we should create these incentives. The damages are way off in the future. So we should start with a low price today. And then that price should rise slowly over time. And when we get closer to those damages being realized, we'll have a high enough price that will avoid the worst of those damages. And that's the appropriate trade-off. Well, that didn't take risk into account. (laughs) And so I make the analogy, it's like if you're, and I happen to be a cyclist, so I like this analogy, if you're riding in the mountains and you've been down a particular road 50 times, you know all the curves in the road and you know there's a sharp curve up ahead, how do you brake? Well, if you know that that curve is up ahead and you know how fast you can go, you have to slow down to get to that curve and you ease onto the brakes and you get there with exactly the right speed to get around that curve safely. Now, if you've never been down this road before and you're going down at a high speed and all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a sharp curve ahead and you're not confident that you can slow down enough in time to make that curve safely, how do you ease on the brakes? Well, you slam on the brakes hard enough that you're confident that you'll be able to slow down fast enough. And as you gather more information, maybe you see that the road is wet or there's some sand in the road or it's sharper than you thought or steeper drop off, whatever. Hopefully you have time to make those adjustments, but you have to be prepared for the worst case scenario. And of course, that's the problem today with respect to climate. We're not prepared for the worst case scenario. We don't know how bad it might be. And we have to think about extreme but plausible outcomes. And what that means is rather than a slowly rising price, it's way too late for that. We have to slam on the brakes and be prepared for whatever comes at us. And the brake, of course, is the incentive that we create to reduce emissions. So the longer we wait, the worse the situation is. You can think of the risk as being summarized by what is the highest average temperature change in the future climate. In other words, the temperature today globally averaged relative to historic temperatures is an increase of about one degree C. And scientists have for a long time talked about two degrees C is really where we start to get into dangerous territory. Well, first of all, we don't really know. It's not like there's a bright line at two degrees C. But in any case, where we are today is about one degree C of warming. And inevitably, no matter what we do, the warming is going to continue for decades into the future. If we were to what I call slam on the brakes today by creating strong incentives to reduce emissions, we might be able to get to net zero by 2050. That's what we're hoping to do. And so... Until then, we're increasing the amount of warming in the atmosphere. It takes another decade or two past that net zero 
to where we come to a new equilibrium and the amount of heat escaping from the earth at that point becomes balanced with the amount of heat that's coming into the earth. And so that might be 2070. And right now it looks like in that scenario, the best case, the warming will peak at about 1.7 or 1.8 degrees C. Now, here's the really dangerous thing. For every three years that we wait to impose those incentives to reduce emissions, to slam on the brakes, the inevitable maximum temperature increases by about one-tenth of a degree C. So if we're at 1.7 degrees inevitable temperature rise today, then in another 10 years, we'll be at about two degrees C. And then, you know, if we wait longer than that, it continues to increase at that rate. And so the risk is just increasing very dramatically with every year of delay that we continue today. That's why the response is inevitable, but the risk is increasing for every year of delay. You know, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, we've done numerous shows actually on the topic of carbon budgets and, you know, what does 1.5 or 2 degrees C mean as a target and so on. But no one's ever quite framed it that way, which I guess reflects your background in risk management. So that's an interesting point. I mean, I really appreciate your clear statement of the value of using carbon pricing as an incentive here. And I think you've articulated the case for that very well. And again, I think most people agree on it. But again, I live in the world of real politic as an energy analyst. And I look at why have we made the progress that we've made over the past 20 years? And because it clearly was not about carbon pricing, it was about technologies becoming more mature and viable, especially wind and solar, but also lots of other increasingly technologies on the demand side. It's because of oil and gas having lots of problems and coal having its own problems, which are fundamentally increasing their costs and also the costs of just managing the damage that they do in real time, let alone the more distant damage of carbon emissions. So from this real politic perspective, I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, it would be great. I fully get it. I understand it. I support it. But can I really hope for it? Chris, we have no choice. That's number one. And yes, look, this is not going to be easy. If it was easy, it would have been done a long time ago. There are plenty of smart people who knew 20, 30 years ago, we have to do this. And yet we haven't done it. So why haven't we done it? You know, you raise some important issues and there's a lot of what I would call frictions that have to be overcome. First of all, it's a global problem and you've got a free rider problem. We've got countries who will benefit if everyone moves forward together, but they also benefit if everyone else moves forward together and they don't. And so we're all better off hoping that everyone else moves first and we'll wait and not have to pay the expense because it costs you something to reduce your emissions. The cheapest approach, which is the approach that we've used historically, is to burn fossil fuels. Now, you're right that in some sense, we've made progress. The solar has come down. There's been closing of a lot of coal-fired power plants to replace them with natural gas, which reduces the amount of emissions and so on. But the reality is we don't have the right incentives. And so when you aggregate all of that up, emissions are still increasing globally in the economy. We're not on track. We haven't really started, Chris, and time is running out. Again, we should have done this decades ago. So what are some of the other frictions? It's the global coordination problem. There's also the established interests, fossil fuel interests in particular, 
in other entrenched interests which don't want to make the change for which well not only which don't want to make the change but which have actively resisted any effort to implement a carbon price (laughs) right right because it's not in their interest and so this has been very difficult and then ask yourself who's going to benefit it's generations that are not here it's my grandchildren and your grandchildren and their grandchildren down the road none of whom get a voice none of whom get to vote so that makes it kind of hard and yet it's inevitable that we're going to do this because ultimately it's a collective action problem and we're all in this together and we all eventually realize that we have to do this or the well-being of all of us is diminished and we're starting to see that obviously i mean 20 years ago the impacts weren't as obvious Today, whether you're watching the sea level rise in Miami or whether you're sitting in New Orleans watching one hurricane after another come at you, or I'm sitting in California and we have this dystopian smoke from wildfires that is getting worse every year. So it's pretty clear what's going on and it's pretty clear what we need to do what you're starting to see and this is evidenced in the cftc report chris is that everyone gets it and everyone agrees and so even fossil fuel companies are coming together and saying yes of course we need to have the right incentives to reduce emissions and yes there is an externality there is risk associated with greenhouse gas emissions and yes there is a budget we don't have an unlimited amount and how are we going to allocate that budget. We have to come together and figure out how to create these incentives. Okay. Well, we're going to return to the concept of carbon pricing and what that price really should be later on in the interview, but I want to just kind of tackle some of the other topics in the report. And the next area was the oversight of climate risk. And this harkens back actually to the 2008 financial crisis, after which Congress created the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, mm-hmm. to monitor emerging risks to the financial system and recommended tightening regulations on institutions where needed. And your subcommittee is calling upon the FSOC to integrate climate into its oversight functions and into its reporting to Congress, both the kind of systemic risk that was at the heart of the 2008 crisis and the climate risk that faces smaller financial institutions such as community and agricultural banks. So what does this mean in practice? Like what specifically would the FSOC ask financial institutions to do differently? Well, as you mentioned, the FSOC is charged with being responsible for emerging risks to the financial system. And climate risk is nothing if not an emerging risk to the financial system. So it clearly (laughs) falls into the FSOC authority. I think in terms of what they should ask for is probably more directed towards some of the other regulators. FSOC is really a group that gets together of all the financial regulators. And so FSOC should really be directing the Fed, the SEC, the CFTC, the insurance regulators, and any other important bodies that are involved in financial regulation to take a look at the emerging climate risk and what does it mean to the institutions that they're regulating and how are they managing that risk. So one of the things that makes climate risk so difficult is that It's both a top-down emerging risk to the whole economy and to the financial system as a whole, 
which is a systemic risk. It's also a risk to, let's say, subsystemic regions. You might have a hurricane, uh, might have wildfires, you might have flooding that don't affect the whole economy, but do affect their regions. And then you have individual companies and entities that are very local. So if I'm worried about, you know, if I'm PG&E in California, I have to worry about wildfires and drought and heat and all of that. So there is very different levels of aggregation, very different data and analytics that are involved. And so it really requires a comprehensive view And FSOC really can provide that top-down comprehensive view of the emerging risks to the financial system. So they're definitely an important player in this. I mean, what specifically would they ask financial institutions to do differently, though? Well, let's say they'd start with the Fed, okay, and they might say we should be part of the global regulatory oversight that's provided by the NGFS. And that was one of the recommendations in our report that the Fed join the NGFS. Well, FSOC should probably suggest that. And then you might think about, okay, what do investors need to know about the risk management of the companies or more generally the assets that they own. And that would require disclosure, which is a responsibility in some cases of the SEC, the CFTC, insurance regulators, and so on. So important disclosures around the climate risk to all financial assets is something that FSOC should be focused on. Explain for our listeners what NGFS is. Oh, that's the network for greening the financial system, which is really a group of central banks from around the world and some other financial regulators that have come together to discuss how to think about coordinating the global response to climate risk. Great. So your background is in risk management. So I'd really be interested in how you look at this big, broad concept of climate risk. It's so big, it's so sprawling, it touches on so many parts of the economy. Like, what is the acceptable amount of risk and where and how should it be apportioned? Well, we have to talk about risks that come in many different forms. So you have the physical impacts of climate change, and those are starting to emerge in terms of floods, heat waves, storms, hurricanes, wildfires, health impacts, and so on. And then you also have the risks that come from the transition to a low-carbon economy. And those are going to be risks to stranded assets, toward the valuations of some securities and businesses, particularly if that transition is very abrupt. You also have liability that may be there for different types of entities in the economy. So these various types of risks are managed by different levels of authority. FSOC is an overall top-down focus. An individual company may be very localized and focused on its own impacts and understanding these and sort of aggregating these and all of that is is really an important part of understanding climate risk management. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. 
in addition to two full new episodes each month. Subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now, a long look at some recent news items. Item 1. Citing the new CFTC report, three descendants of Standard Oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller called on J.P. Morgan Chase to stop funding the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure and to set a timeline to stop supporting companies that do not have an exit plan from their own fossil fuel exposure. J.P. Morgan Chase was once known as the Rockefeller Bank, which the family patriarch had used to diversify the family's business away from fossil fuels at the time of the 1918 pandemic. The family has remained clients of the bank ever since. Noting that no major U.S. bank has committed to ending support for fossil fuel companies that don't have an exit strategy to meet the Paris Agreement climate goals, the Rockefellers have started an organization known as Bank FWD, a network of individuals, businesses, and foundations that have pledged to use their banking choices and public standing to persuade major banks to phase out their financing of fossil fuels and lead on climate action. Item 2. In its November Financial Stability Report, the U.S. Federal Reserve highlighted climate change as a near-term risk to the financial system, noting that it, quote, increases the likelihood of dislocations and disruptions in the economy and, quote, is likely to increase financial shocks and financial system vulnerabilities that could further amplify these shocks. The central bank recommends that banks implement mechanisms to identify, measure, control, and... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.